Well, once again, uh, thank you for joining us. We're looking at the sacrament of baptism today. Sorry, I just kind of lost my thought there already. We're looking at the sacrament of baptism. And we have um, made our way through the Lord's Prayer. And uh, now we're continuing to just progress along. This is a study that uh, is based, has its foundation in the small catechism, but it's also uh, something where we are looking at uh, the large catechism closely too. And of course, uh, beyond all that, relying on scriptures. So if you're just joining us, go ahead and say hello. If you're listening in on the podcast, you can actually comment on the webpage for the podcast as well and uh, let us know uh, how you're doing. And again, if you are, have not subscribed to our YouTube channel, please do that. Um, if you haven't subscribed to our podcast, please do that. For YouTube, we're quite a ways away yet from 100 people, uh, but I'm hoping we can get there. And if we do, then uh, we can have a custom URL for our uh, YouTube channel, which will make it a lot easier. Our Facebook page is facebook.com backslash goodshepherd.info. Our website is goodshepherd.info. Wouldn't it be nice if our YouTube page was youtube.com backslash goodshepherd.info? Uh, so that's the goal is just unity. So also, if you subscribe on the podcast, then you also will have notifications whenever a new podcast is put out. We use this for the small catechism and then also for our sermons. You can listen into those. Uh, so you can watch me on Sunday mornings, either on Facebook or YouTube, or you can catch me in person at church. And then if you're wondering what in the world was he saying, you can go back and hear me again. So um, anyhow, um, uh, Christine, hello, how you doing? Uh, she's checking in the comments section. And so um, not the last one. Uh, if you have to go back to work, uh, just you know, take a 40 minute long break um, and you can join us again next week. I'll write your boss a note, don't worry about it. it the, note, the note means nothing, but I'm sure it'll be fine anyway. So um, anyhow, we're looking at, again, the sacrament of baptism. And the big question I think that baptism helps us answer is, what, how do I know that I'm saved? You know, so what, what does baptism do? How does that reassure me? And we're going to be looking at that uh, question from a couple different ways. We're going to be, of course, incorporating uh, the small catechism, large catechism in scripture. We're also going to have a little glimpse from the early church fathers, because I think it's important that we establish baptism in its historical setting. So we understand that this isn't just something that has uh, just popped up into the mind of Luther uh, and the church had no idea about it before. Uh, so we're going to look at that. And we're going to go ahead and get started. So as usual, we're going to begin with our starting point, which is the small catechism. So I'll bring that up here on the screen for you. Again, if you're listening uh, on the podcast, if you are able to, it's great to Google Luther small catechism. There's a couple different free versions of that online. Um, or if you're just listening, um, then I'll try to let you read slowly and let you know what we're talking about. So the first question about baptism and Luther's small catechism is, what is baptism? Baptism is not just plain water, but it is water included in God's command and combined with God's word. Which is that word of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So we're going to begin by just simply talking about the definition that Luther gave us of baptism. And then also we're going to be looking at that verse, Matthew 
28 verse 19. So with baptism, one thing that's important, and we're going to build upon this idea later, is that baptism is of divine origin. It is not a man-made ceremony. It is not a human tradition. Uh, but Luther writes here that baptism is not just plain water, but it is water included in God's command and combined with God's word. So what is the power behind baptism? It is nothing less than the word of God. The word of God is what gives baptism its efficacy or what makes baptism effective. Otherwise, you just have plain water being splashed on a person's head. Uh, so it's the word of God that drives it. So it's that same word of God that said, let there be light. The same word of God that in the end will, will call us from the grave uh, when Christ returns to raise the dead. The same word of God that will defeat Satan with just uh, the breath of his mouth. So again, what we're talking about is this divine, powerful word working through ordinary means like water. And this also is the definition of a sacrament that uh, we have the, uh, an ordinary means that God delivers his forgiveness of sins through. In the Lutheran church, we have two sacraments. We have baptism and the Lord's Supper. So we're going to be talking about the Lord's Supper in a couple Wednesdays from now, if I can ever stay on track. And But right now we're talking about this first sacrament, baptism. So baptism is a sacrament. A sacrament is something that, that God delivers his forgiveness of sins through uh, using an ordinary means. Um, so you can think of it as uh, the delivery method of grace. That's a sacrament. The delivery method of grace. Uh, let's take a look now at um, the, quite, the next question in Luther's small catechism. Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Matthew, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So with that, we want to understand a little bit of the context of Matthew chapter 28, because I believe this is important when we're laying the groundwork for baptism. And I haven't, I don't think I've found a good way to ask this question yet because every time I do, when I'm teaching a class, uh, people kind of stare at me like, uh, <laughs> and so, um, it's important to note that Matthew 28 is the last chapter of Matthew. There is no Matthew 29. So, so also, uh, these are among in verse 19, the very last words that Jesus speaks in the gospel of Matthew. So, uh, at, we're getting to the end of the story of Jesus' earthly ministry and life. And so the question that I ask that people usually kind of go, ah, uh, is I, I say, what happened before this? The last words of Matthew uh, from Jesus, the last chapter of Matthew. So what has happened? Uh, so I'll Pause over that question for a moment and see if you can maybe guess if you're just listening or if you're watching this live or watching it later, uh, you can maybe type that into the comment section. What has happened? Um, and there's a lot of things that you can answer there. Um, so maybe I'll try to narrow it down. What just happened? What just happened? Uh, again, we're at the end of the gospel. So if we were at the beginning, we'd be thinking about Jesus' birth. If we're at the end of the story of Jesus' ministry, uh, then we would be thinking about significant events surrounding that. So what just happened in math after, as Jesus is speaking now to his disciples. So if you're typing in the comment uh, right now, um, you can do that. I'll go ahead and answer it. Jesus has been crucified and he has been raised from the dead. 
So this is the resurrected Lord. And there's another thing, what is about to happen? And this one's a little bit harder, but um, what's about to happen is that Jesus is going to ascend into heaven. And so he'll be present with his disciples, but not physically and bodily present in the way that he's present with them now. So these are parting words from Jesus after a significant victory over sin and death. And so we need to look at it that way because if we're in the mindset of somebody who's going to be leaving our dear friends and family uh, and we're just about to hop in the car and go, right, we would definitely, definitely want to say some, say some of our most important words to them, right? So these are the words that people are going to remember you by. These are the words that people are going to be thinking about as the car backs down the driveway and thinking about for a long time after that. So with that in mind, Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. In Matthew verse 28, verse 20, he says, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Jesus gives three commands, make disciples, baptize, teach. So it's hard to think of, of things that would be more important to Jesus than those three items. Make disciples, baptize, and teach. So in the subject of baptism, then, we're looking at the top three commands of Jesus, and that baptizing is sealed with a promise at the end. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. I am going to be with you, overcoming sin, death, and Satan. I'm going to be backing you up as you do these things. So Jesus is not only saying that you should do this and it's important for you to do it, but with those parting words, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, he's saying that I am going to continue to invest myself in these activities through you as you do them. So baptizing then uh, if becomes very, very important. And this already, I, I think, begins to chip away at the foundation of baptizing being just a symbolic exercise to demonstrate your faith before other people. Um, it, it's so much more than that. Uh, and if if we can't make a complete 100% case off of baptism then we should uh, from this verse, then we should at least recognize what's going on. Jesus, as the victorious Son of God, is commissioning his disciples to go everywhere into the world. And as he's telling them to do that, he's telling them to baptize. If it was something symbolic, you think that, that it wouldn't make the top three. But yet here it is, uh, one of the last three commands uh, Jesus gives, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, also, again, the name of God. Um, the, the name of God isn't attached to any light symbolic actions so Jesus says, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So he's taking the name and he's putting it right together with the action of baptism. And we know from the Old Testament that wherever God's name is invoked in a blessing, uh, that, that, that God will be at work to deliver his people. The benediction uh, that we say at the end of this service uh, comes from uh, Numbers chapter 6. And uh, the benediction says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord look upon you with favor and give you his peace. Uh, God gives 
the priest of Israel in the Old Testament the command to say this blessing to his people. And after that, he says, so you will put my name on them. So whenever the name of God is invoked, God is there to deliver and protect and to do real work uh, for his people. So baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit is also really important, connecting the name to the action of baptism. Uh, so let's look a little bit more at the large catechism here. We have, uh, again, uh, that, that this baptism, where does it come from? Where does this idea of baptism start? Well, it, it begins with, uh, with uh, divine origin. Sorry about that. Uh, and we're going to read from Luther's large catechism. It says, you should not doubt then that baptism is of divine origin, not something devised or invented by men. As truly as I can say that the Ten Commandments, the Creed, and the Lord's Prayer are not spun out of any man's imagination, but revealed and given by God himself. So I can also boast that baptism is no human plaything, but is instituted by God himself. And then Luther also says in the large catechism about baptism, but mad reason rushes forth, and because baptism is not dazzling like the works which we do, regards it as worthless. Reason regards it as worthless. So let me ask you a question. Uh, if you doubt the power of baptism, if you doubt that it is something that has any efficacy, uh, any power, does this sound like something we'd invent? <laughs> I mean, if we were inventing a way for people to get saved, you think there'd be a little more razzle-dazzle to it. And in our nation, in our country, um, you think that we would make it something that a person could buy for a low, low family-friendly price, right? And yet, it's free. And yet, it's something so ordinary, and it defies our reason and logic completely. It is so foreign to the way that we normally think about things and the way that we would normally think about a person would need to obtain something of great value. But God takes his word and puts it in ordinary water. That's something only God would do. And I would argue something only God would think of. And to kind of further illustrate that point, I'll tell, tell a quick story. I was a uh, tutor in college, believe it or not. <laughs> uh, I was a tutor for a uh, religion class, actually. It was a mandatory uh religion class. I went to Concordia, Wisconsin. And so everybody there had to take a class that offered basic religious instruction. Um, no matter who you were, you had to take one of these. So anyhow, um, I was a tutor for one of these classes and uh, we had um, a foreign exchange student who came from a country where Christianity was far from the predominant religion. In fact, he barely knew anything of Christianity at all, other than the fact that it was a religion among all the other religions out there. And so he requested tutoring and uh, my name got pulled and I met with him in the library and he was really confused about baptism. And I remember explaining to him what baptism was. And as I'm explaining it, I'm thinking, this sounds insane. And the expression on his face confirmed that for me. He was utterly confused by, that explana by the explanation I gave him of baptism. And I take two points from that. One is, man, 
I'm really bad at this. <laughs> and two, the fact that baptism is so strange is actually strangely comforting because the things of God would and should defy our reason, shouldn't they? I mean, if God is above us, then of course there's going to be mystery. Then of course there's going to be things that we wrestle with explaining. Uh, a third point, not very important to this lesson, was that perhaps starting with a doctrine like baptism wasn't the place that somebody who was just finding out about Christianity needed to begin with, because uh, it is kind of ab abstract to teach about. And so uh, let's now take a look at the small catechism again. We're going to go to the next couple questions here. Uh, question two and three, um, or actually three and four, I'm sorry. What benefits does baptism give? So that's Luther's question. What benefits does baptism give? It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, and gives eternal salvation to all who believe this, as the words and promises of God declare. Which are these words and promises of God? Christ our Lord says in the last chapter of Mark, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. All right, so... Here we have um, one of the big challenges to baptism that comes up is, aren't we saved by faith alone, right? Uh, aren't we saved by faith alone? Why do you need this baptism thing if all you have to do is believe in Jesus? And some people will point out, you know, examples of like the thief on the cross, right? And they'll say, well, that person believed um, and they're saved because that's the story where Jesus um, has a person dying next to him on the cross, and he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. And Jesus responds to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. So the thief on the cross was saved at you know the last minute, and we know for sure that he is in heaven, and clearly he couldn't have been baptized. So, so why does a person need baptism? What does it matter? Uh, so here Luther comes out and talks about exactly what baptism does. It works forgiveness of sins, rescues from death and the devil, gives eternal salvation to all who believe this as the words and promises of God declare. All right. Uh, and then again, Mark 16, 16 uh, says, whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. Let's go to the large catechism uh, where Luther kind of expounds upon this whole faith alone thing and whether or not we should be concerned uh, with baptism interfering with being saved through faith alone. Uh, Luther writes this, our know-it-alls, the new spirits, assert that faith alone saves and that works and external things contribute nothing to this end. We answer, it is true. Nothing that is in us does it but faith, as we shall hear later on. But these leaders of the blind are unwilling to see that faith must have something to believe, something to which it may cling and upon which it may stand. Thus faith clings to the water and believes it to be baptism, in which there is sheer salvation and life, not through the water, as we have sufficiently stated, but through its incorporation with God's word and ordinance and the joining of his name to it. So what is Luther saying? I think one thing that, that he points out that's extremely helpful um, is that he says, you know, faith must have something to believe. Faith must have something that it can cling to and get its arms around something concrete 
to something that seals the deal. So when it comes to baptism, first of all, we don't worship the water, just as when it comes to communion, some have accused us of worshiping bread and wine. We don't worship bread and wine. We worship Jesus. And yet, for the sake of our conscience, for the sake of certainty, Jesus has given us a means through which we are saved. So I can put my faith on this, that the day that water touched my forehead, the word of God was at work. And because I know that God works through baptism, I am saved. I have received the forgiveness of sins. And so our faith uh, looks to this one moment in time through which God acted from above us uh, and brought forth his salvation to us. So baptism then is sort of this uh, moment, an, an epoch in time, where we can say, yes, this is where uh, I receive forgiveness and salvation. And I think I've mentioned this in, the small, in our small catechism studies uh, on Wednesday nights before, but every bedroom, every bedroom that I have slept in, every, every bedroom that I've called my own, I have hanging up in there uh, the banner of my baptism. I, I remember way back when I was in Sunday school and uh, we made banners that uh, had our baptism date on it. So you had like a cross and uh, a little bowl and water and a dove all made out of felt. And um, on that uh, little bowl uh, is written the date uh, that I am baptized uh, with just, I think, a Sharpie marker or something like that. Uh, and so January 15th is my baptism birthday. Uh, and so whenever I'm troubled in my conscience, whenever I am worried about what God thinks of me, I go back and I say, January 15th, my faith clings not to a day on the calendar. I don't worship a day on the calendar. Um, my faith clings uh, not to the necessarily water. My faith clings to the word of God, where I know for sure in that moment, God brought me forgiveness of sins. He brought me salvation and he has rescued me from death. And so, um, so yes, it, it's external, um, uh, but it's external so that it can be perceived and grasped by the senses and brought in to the heart. Uh, just as the entire gospel is an external an oral proclamation, right? Uh, and so the gospel always comes to us from the outside in. And this is yet another way that that happens. So uh, perhaps a, a preacher somewhere tells me the gospel and I believe. Um, in that moment where the gospel was delivered to me, I can rest and say, yes, I know somebody preached the gospel to me. I know that I've received forgiveness through that gospel being preached. Baptism is merely the same thing. I know that when the water touched my forehead, God was at work um, and he baptized me and he made me his own. And just a quick note, I did say, you know, touch her forehead. There are some, and I actually had a conversation just recently about this. Uh, there's some who believe that, that you need that you have to dunk. Um, in the Lutheran Church, uh, we're we're known for our flexibility, <laughs> um, and so uh, you can dunk, you can splash, you can sprinkle, uh, you can you can apply the water in whatever appropriate and reverent way you want. We're not exactly down with the squirt gun thing, but who knows? Maybe we'll get there. Um, but anyhow, 
so you have that that baptism uh, then is uh, this again uh, this moment in time, this thing that God works through that we can rest our faith on. And, and it's important to remember, because again, our question tonight is, how do I know that I am saved? Uh, one of the easiest ways to know is to simply look back at that baptism certificate, or maybe you have a banner hanging up in your room, or maybe you just have um, a, a memory of being baptized. Uh, maybe it's in church records somewhere, but but you know. Um, and so you can look back to that. Um, all right, so now let's look at this. How can water do such great things? Certainly not just water, but the word of God in and with the water does these things, along with the faith which trusts this word of God in the water. For without God's word, the water is plain water and no baptism, but with the word of God, it is a baptism. That is a life-giving water, rich in grace, and a washing of the new birth in the Holy Spirit, as St. Paul says in Titus chapter 3. He saved us to the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. All right. And so uh, we have um, uh, Luther again is, is uh, pointing out for us exactly how baptism works. Um, it's not just regular water. It's not empty ceremony, um, but it's the word of God in and with the water. The word sacrament actually goes back to the Latin word for mystery. Uh, and we do have mystery about the sacrament. We don't have mystery about the what. Again, scripture explains that. And we're going to talk even more passages, but we're offered one here from Titus chapter 3, where it says that he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Um, and uh, that washing refers to baptism. And so you have that. Um, but so it's not the what the what happens. It's not the when, because we know that wherever there's a baptism, God is doing these things, baptism in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, but it's actually the how. That's the mystery. That's the mystery. Um, not how in the sense of I'm not sure how to put water on a person and say in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the mechanics on our end are clear, but the mystery of the how is how does God's word, the divine, holy word of God, work its way into water, unseen, unnoticed, um, no light shining down from heaven, no, no angels. Um, if we put the water under a microscope, all we would see is whatever might be in that water, which hopefully wouldn't be much because it should be clean water. But uh, again, so we're not sure exactly how that works. Again, with communion, it's the same thing. We know that Christ's body and blood is present in communion, but we don't know exactly how God works his son Jesus into the bread and into the wine. So that's the mystery part. Um, and so uh, part of the Christian faith then is becoming comfortable with the fact that there are some things that we don't understand, but we take on faith. We take on faith. Uh, let's look at these words from Titus. Titus chapter 3, verses 5 through 8 is what Luther quoted. And it says, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying. 
So um, again, that washing, as I've already mentioned, uh, is a is a reference to baptism. The spirit um, uh, is uh, at work in baptism. And then, of course, we have Christ who's present at baptism. And what does he do? He justifies us by his grace and makes us heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And again, as we wrestle with the question of if am I saved or not, and, and as we point towards baptism, it's important to know that, that baptism uh, is not an incomplete gift. Look at all that was listed here in Titus chapter 3, uh, verses 5 through 8, um, that this baptism is a washing it's a rebirth. And what does, uh, what does Jesus say in John chapter 3? He says uh, that you must be born again. How are we born again? We're born through the water of baptism. Uh, we're renewed by the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ um, uh, is poured out generously on us through baptism. And, and that baptism justifies us or makes us right with God. And also it makes us heirs. Um, of eternal life and gives us hope. And so baptism delivers all these things. Baptism lacks nothing. And if you have been baptized, then you also lack nothing when it comes to salvation. Uh, see how completely this is listed here. Um, and then also another another thing that we're going to get to, I'm maybe jumping around a little bit more tonight, or maybe I'm more organized than I have been. It's just hard to know because being organized is such a strange feeling to me. So, uh, but another subject that always comes up when we talk about baptism is infant baptism. Um, and we're going to relate this also to a struggle with, am I saved or not, that adults might be having. Uh, because I believe that it comes a lot of times from the same core issue. So why do we baptize babies? We're one of the churches that do that. The Lutheran Church baptizes babies. We always have. Uh, you have um, Presbyterian churches, the Catholic Church, uh, and Episcopalian churches, and a couple of uh, others in there as well that, that baptize babies. Why do we do that? Um, and we don't call it a christening. Um, uh, we call it a baptism. And so... Um, one thing that, that we need to understand when it comes to baptism, uh, and this is what Luther, this is a move that Luther makes uh, all the time, and it's the right move. Um, and it's that Luther rests everything on the power of God's word, and he rests nothing on us. And so, uh, so again, um, some might call baptism a work, um, something that, that we do. Um, you know, after all, I have to go to the font or I have to bring the baby or the child to the font. I have to say yes. Um, the pastor has to do something to get water, you know, onto a person. But again, all of that work that we do means nothing if God isn't present in baptism, actually doing the saving, the forgiving, the cleansing, the giving of the Holy Spirit and making a person an heir of salvation. All the things we just ran through on Titus and Titus chapter three, verses five through eight. So Jesus is the one um, who is working powerfully. We do nothing in baptism. And so uh, this is where the entire argument for baptism as a sacrament that delivers forgiveness and salvation stands or falls. It's about who does the work. And so then if God does the work, then even a baby can be baptized because 
we do nothing. And babies are capable of doing almost nothing. And so, um, uh, so let, let's talk about that um, um, here a little bit. Uh, so uh, some will argue that where there is no true faith, there can be um, no baptism. And we have a way of saying that too, which I'll explain in a moment. But a lot of people will say that, that um, unless a person believes beforehand, then the baptism means absolutely nothing. We believe that baptism can deliver and create faith. Uh, and again, we believe that uh, because Titus chapter 3 and many other places talk about how the Holy Spirit is given at baptism. And the Holy Spirit creates faith in our hearts. Um, so... Uh, so this turns the whole word of God inside out. If we believe that we need to have faith before we can properly receive baptism, um, then we're kind of saying that Christ's words are only real if I can sense their truth and power in me. Only if I have enough reason and understanding, then I can be uh, baptized. But once again, that puts everything back on me. Um, if I believe that my baptism isn't valid uh, because maybe I didn't believe enough, maybe I didn't understand enough, then I'm focusing on the wrong thing. Um, again, when we, the emphasis is always on God doing the work. God is the one who saves. Um, and also note that uh, nowhere does God say or, or Christ or Paul or any, anybody else, Peter or any of the authors of Scripture ever say um, that you have to understand this much in order to be saved. Why is that? That's because faith and reason are different. Faith and reason are different things. They go together really well. But we believe that reason serves faith. Reason serves faith faith. So reason is a servant of our faith. Um, so yes, um, uh, having an understanding of baptism and, and uh, instruction on who Jesus is, is, is very helpful. Um, but at the same time, we don't say that that is what makes baptism a baptism. Uh, instead, it's God working through the water to create faith and deliver forgiveness. That's what makes a baptism a baptism. And so um, from that point on, from being baptized, we are called to grow in our reason and understanding. We're called to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the truth. But uh, that grace and knowledge is meant to strengthen our faith. God's word is, is the thing that gives that faith in the, in the first place. God's word is the seed. Um, and so, yes, we water it, we tend to it. Um, but God's word is, is what makes faith come about. Um, all right. So, uh, a couple of the notes on, on infant baptism. Um, and so, uh, and again, there's lots of arguments because it's been a long time on this subject. So I'll try to go through things quickly. Um, the idea that, uh, you have to wait, um, to a certain age to be baptized or at least have a certain cognitive understanding about baptism exists nowhere in the scriptures. Uh, and so what happens usually if, if you meet somebody that doesn't believe in infant baptism, what they'll tell you is, is that show me where we are commanded to baptize babies. But you can use the same logic to say, well, show me where you have to wait to be a certain age to be baptized. Nowhere in scripture does it say that you need to be or that, that 
babies should be baptized. And Lutherans freely admit that. There's no command that says directly and explicitly baptize babies. But in the same way, there is no command that explicitly says baptize people once they've reached the age of 13 or once they've uh, become really serious about their faith according to your standard. Uh, <laughs> and so baptism um, then, again, doesn't have – uh, that, or that conversation about baptism doesn't show up anywhere in the Bible. So let's kind of work it back through in a more rudimentary way. Are babies sinners? Yes. Do babies need salvation? Yes. What delivers forgiveness and salvation? Baptism. Does baptism depend on our reason or understanding? No. <laughs> and so even just following the logic uh, of that, we, we realize that, yes, we need to baptize infants. And again, Jesus says baptize all nations. Um, there is no age restriction or limit to Christ's salvation. There's no age restriction or limit um, put on baptism. Uh, and so uh, we're commanded to baptize everybody, um, you know, and so if there were an age limit, if a baptism were invalid under a certain age, but valid after a certain age, you would think that that would be there, be present in scripture uh, for us. Uh, so also um, uh, moving to the early church, um, Gregory of Nazianus, uh, Gregory of Nazianus, uh, a, a church father uh, that um, was in the uh, uh, was about 300 years after Christ. Um, major church father. He writes this: uh, Do not let wickedness seize its chance. Let him be sanctified from babyhood and consecrated by the Spirit in his tender years. Uh, Greg of Nazianus um, also advocated for infant baptism, and um, there's this book called "Worshiping the Ch with the Church Fathers," not worshiping the Church Fathers. <laughs> worshiping with the church fathers. Um, and it's by Christopher Hall. It's a great book. I, I recommend you picking up. Uh, and uh, he notes that the debate about infant baptism does go back uh, to, uh, to the earliest time in church history. It's always been a question, but the majority of church fathers have uh, been in support and favor of baptism. I'll add to that note that a certain age of accountability um, is a thought that is actually kind of new in the history of the church. I mean, it does go back uh, maybe a couple hundred years or something, but when you consider the entire 2,000-year history of the church, a thought that is a couple of centuries old is not that old at all. Um, and so that's the thing that's kind of emerged. Um, decision theology, likewise, that in order to really be saved, we don't need baptism. We just need to decide to let Jesus into our hearts. You don't find any early church fathers or anybody uh, before the time of Martin Luther, uh, or really many people uh, after the time of Martin Luther for a long time saying anything like that. Um, so that idea is novel. It's, it's new um, uh, as far as the wider church history is concerned. Um, so if you take the weight of people that have done scholarship on baptism, uh, who have advocated for infant baptism, and you compare it to those who have ad advocated against infant baptism, the scale is heavily in favor 
uh, of all those faithful Christians of the past who have said, yes, baptize babies. But that's an earthly argument. Um, again, we have everything we need to defend infant baptism within the word of God. Um, and so uh, speaking of, uh, Gregory of Nazianus also points out, and I, I caught this um, earlier this week, and I, I've read this book before, Worshiping with the Church Fathers, totally missed it. Um, but uh, Gregory of Nazianus also points out that Hannah, uh, who was uh, an Old Testament character uh, who gave birth to the prophet Samuel, as in Samuel from First and Second Samuel, uh, a prophet who would later on interact with King Saul and King David, that guy, um, Hannah dedicated Samuel to the priesthood before he was even born. Uh, and so Hannah dedicated her son to the faith before he had a chance to say, you know what, I decide to let you into my heart, Jesus. And nobody um, uh, said, whoa, Hannah, hold up, hold up, you're, you're going too far. Um, and so, yeah, um, uh, we can bring babies and, and, and bring them to faith. Um, uh, and so, uh, and as far as infant baptism, I'll, I'll got a couple more thoughts on that. Um, uh, most arguments about infant baptism are made from exceptions rather than, um, about directly about what the scripture teaches about baptism. Uh, there are some people who will dive into the verses and make an argument, um, uh, against infant baptism, but uh, frankly, those arguments aren't persuasive. <laughs> but you know, don't don't take my word for it. Read them, study them. Shouldn't be afraid of reading things from the opposite side um, on an issue. Um, but uh, most in most cases, in most conversation, you're going to find people making arguments from exception. As I mentioned already, the thief on the cross uh, that will be pointed to, and as 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 if that is an argument against baptism. Or people will say again, um, "Well, uh, you know what? I, I don't see any. Um, uh, I don't see anywhere that there's that there's a command to be baptized." Um, rarely do you come across direct refutation against infant baptism, um, where a person dives in the texts that actually talk about baptism. The thief on the cross, um, again, is not a story about baptism, and the lesson from that. Uh, that we take from that is not about baptism. If we look at Titus chapter 3, Romans chapter 6, Matthew 28, or in 1 Peter chapter 3, uh, Acts chapter 2, verse 38, those texts tell us about baptism. Um, so uh, to make an argument from exception is not the strongest kind of argument. It's sort of arguing around the evidence rather than going right in. Yes, a person can be saved apart from baptism. That is completely true. Uh, the word of God can work through a person who is speaking it. The word of God can work through the water of baptism. We know these things. Um, so the thief on the cross being saved is not surprising to us that, um, or some kind of shock that, that should disrupt the foundation of baptism. Um, and also, um, there's this. Let's look at, um, uh, just again, a brief example uh, from, uh, from uh, logic that somebody else made, made uh, to me a long time ago. Um, I was a student in college, uh, and I was wrestling with this. Well, should we baptize babies? I mean, it seems like there's so many people that say don't, and how do we know? And one of the things that really helped me uh, was uh, the professor in the class that I was um, uh, attending, again, was talking about baptism. If you haven't got this already, I obviously went to a Christian college, a Lutheran college. 
Uh, and so uh, at Concordia, Wisconsin, um, the professor was talking um, and he said, you know, when my wife was pregnant, I was the father of that child. Um, I was the father. Um, and so uh, that relationship existed, whether that baby could acknowledge me, understand me, or even know me. There was um, no way of, of arguing that I was not the father of the child, right? And um, having four children now myself, I recognize the truth even more of what he said, um, that yeah, um, when you are, uh, when, you're, when your wife is, is pregnant and you're the father, you're the father. Um, and so that relationship exists. Uh, likewise, um, and then this is what the professor said to me, it's Dr. Mashke, um, he said, uh, or said to the class, um, he said, um, likewise, if God says that this is my child, who am I to argue? Um, it's not based on the understanding of, of the child. It's not based on the capability of the child. In baptism, God is literally adopting the child into his family. And if God, uh, who has the right to do that and the authority to do, to do that, does that, well, it's done. Um, and so uh, that's, that's, again, another um, uh, argument that, that I found particularly persuasive um, uh, about baptism. And so uh, let's, okay, so let's kind of move it back again to this question, am I really saved? Um, and how does baptism speak to that? Uh, hopefully we've already done a lot of work to answer that. Um, but again, uh, it comes down to this. Um, when we're wrestling with, bat with um, our salvation, we always have our baptism to look to. And let's remember that, that God works through means that God worked through a particular man with a particular set of veins that carried a particular set of human blood uh, and that blood and that blood only that regular ordinary human blood is the blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sins. The blood that cleanses us from all sins. God used human flesh as a means an ordinary regular means to deliver salvation. That's just how he's always worked throughout the Old Testament and then into the new and now. And so um, uh, many people uh, who would deny the sacraments, um, baptism and the Lord's Supper, because they are means and not some direct um, intangible connection to Jesus, uh, are actually believing in a God who works through means. And they've been believing it all along. Jesus Christ um, is the one who has brought uh, deliverance and forgiveness of sins. Uh, and so again, where scripture tells me that Jesus is present, first Titus chapter three, verse five through eight tells me Jesus is present in baptism. Then I know that the forgiveness of sins and salvation is being worked there. Um, all right. So let's, uh, we're going to wrap up with just a couple verses to look at, um, to expand uh, again, our foundation, our biblical foundation for baptism. The question that Paul is focusing on in Romans chapter six is what should we do? Um, now that we have the forgiveness of sins and he starts chapter six with this question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? He says, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? 
we were therefore buried with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Now, I've just granted that baptism or what is baptism is not the question that Paul is dealing with, nor is he intending in Romans chapter 6 to lay out a textbook style foundation for baptism. And yet note that when he's talking about how we live the Christian life, he cannot help but bring us first back to where our Christian life began. And where does it begin? Baptism. So instead of saying, um, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Come on, do better. He's, he takes us back and he says, do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And he goes on. So, yeah, um, his foundational question or his, his starting question is not about baptism, but he cannot avoid that subject when he's talking about how we ought to live the Christian life, because in baptism, that's where the Christian life began. Uh, he talks about being baptized into his death. He talks about being um, uh, also uh, brought into Christ's resurrection to be raised with Christ. And so think of it like this. In baptism, your life then becomes intertwined and tangled up with Jesus. What has happened to him happens to you. Um, and so as he has died uh, to sin, so also in baptism, your sins are drowned and buried. And as he has been raised to new life, also because of baptism and, you're, and being united with Christ, you look forward to that resurrection as well. Uh, and so here is actually the foundation for my, um, for our obedience to Jesus. Um, so baptism isn't an excuse to be lazy, but again, when we're confronted with sin, we go back to our baptism and we remember who we are. When I face a temptation, I say, no, I have died to this. My identity is different. I am not, uh, a, a, a sinner. I am, uh, a a person made righteous, covered in Christ's works, and I dare not stain my salvation with this sin. So we turn away um, uh, from sin because we are baptized. We obey Jesus because we are baptized. Our, our identity our identity starts, um, or let me say this um, a better way. Obedience um, starts with identity, all right? Um, Obedience starts with identity. And, and so um, we do what we do because of who we are. And we obey Jesus because of who we've been made in baptism. Um, now, um, just to conclude um, everything here, uh, we have, uh, you know, still longing maybe perhaps for one verse, one verse that comes out and clearly tells us that we are saved. I mean, we, we've talked about Matthew 28, where Jesus says, go and baptize. And so there's a command there, right? And we should, we should follow that. But does Jesus say that, you're, that, that salvation comes through baptism? No. Titus, um, we've got to do some work with that one to really kind of uh, dig out what, what Titus is saying about, about baptism. Uh, Romans 6 talks about um, you know, being baptized into Jesus' death and baptized into or in, in, in 
you know, baptized into his resurrection. But is that, is that really, you know, as clear as we need it to be? If only there was something like first Peter chapter three, verse 21, baptism, which corresponds to this now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the body, not a symbolic thing, not an empty activity, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. And so as we uh, leave tonight, um, we'll let it rest on those words that you have received salvation through your baptism. And should you doubt, the answer is not to go back and redo your baptism. The answer is not to uh, continue to try and justify yourself through your works or find ways uh, to feel better about yourself at the end of the day. The answer that, that cures our conscience and uh, quiets down all those worries and troubles is to go back and see what God has done for us objectively through, his, through baptism and read again what he has promised about it. And so um, this is why as, as Christians, it pays to wake up every morning and to say, I am baptized. Make even the sign of the cross, which was made over you at your baptism as another physical reminder of your baptism, uh, to remind yourself every day of who you are. Uh, so that way you might obey the one that you've been called to follow. So uh, that's what we have um, for baptism. We'll be looking at the Office of the Keys uh, next week. And uh, if you don't know what that is, well, stay tuned and you'll find out. Um, we've got some great stories that go along with that. There's some things that I've come across along the way as I've studied this that are, uh, that are really interesting and, and some really powerful stories as well. So uh, next week, uh, we'll be back again at 7 o'clock. Uh, thank you so much for joining us. If you feel like this video um, or podcast has been helpful to you, uh, once again, uh, please share that. Um, and if you haven't uh, uh, subscribed uh, to us yet, um, you can do that as well. You can su subscribe to us over YouTube. You can su uh, subscribe to us. I'm having trouble saying subscribe. You can subscribe to us over YouTube. You can subscribe to our podcast. Um, and uh, it'd be great to have you join us that way. So uh, once again, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.